Look with me in Luke chapter number 2, verse number 1. The Bible says, It came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, under the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. The angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you, ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace goodwill towards men. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this opportunity. We thank you for what this season means. Lord, we thank you that you'd love us enough to give us the gift of your Son, the gift of your mercy, the gift of your grace, the gift of your faithfulness, the gift of your security. Lord, all the things that you've blessed us with, we uh, time would fail us if we endeavored to list everything, every good benefit that you've blessed our souls with. I pray that as we approach this passage, we'd not approach it as a matter of obligation, duty, or formality, but as the fresh bread from heaven, manna from on high, a word in due season to speak to our hearts, to address our needs, and to draw us closer unto thee. Lord, we love you, we thank you for it, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, when I read this passage, I find five basic truths, principles, themes, and ideals in this passage. In fact, I'll, I'll, I'll open the veil a little bit on what it looks like when I study, at least. I'm sure every preacher does it different, but I sit down and I begin to break a passage. And I just read through and look for the natural breaks of thought within the passage. And as you walk through this passage, you find these breaks uh, every few verses. And in the verses we've read, we find five different themes and ideals that are set forth that I believe represent the spirit and ideals of Christmas. Look with me at verses 1 through 3. The Bible says, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. Now look at verse 4. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, under the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Let me say that the first grand great theme of the Christmas story is the orchestration and the organization of providence. When you read this passage, I think it's lost on us sometimes. We've heard it so much, we've read it so much, that it's lost on us the impact of what's said here. The Bible literally says that there had never been before this time a worldwide census, a worldwide taxation that had transpired. And yet at this moment in human history, God orchestrated providentially that there would be a great taxing that would transpire that would bring the Christ child to Bethlehem. 
imagine for just a moment if one of the great world leaders, and we could talk about our own president, I believe he's a great world leader. Did I just ruin Christmas for you? I don't like everything he does and says. But, uh, but, but I do think he is a great world leader. Certainly America is dominant upon the world stage. We talk about some of the other world leaders. Imagine if on your birthday they declared a federal holiday and they required that everybody show up to one place and have to do something, pay a fee or perform a task that one place just for your birthday. You'd feel awful privileged, wouldn't you? You'd, you might not want that much attention drawn to your birthday, I don't know, but the fact that God literally moved nations, emperors, in preparation for the coming of His Son is one of the great themes of Christmas. Think with me for a moment about the preparation of providence. There was never a time before in human history that this even could have happened. Never before this moment in human history could all the world have participated in a census and could all the world have come to a place to be taxed. Never before could this have taken place. There are three things historically that permitted this to happen. And there's Latin names that go along with them. Uh, for instance, there's the, uh, the historical principle of what we call Rio Romana, the Roman road system. Never before the Roman Empire and before this stage in the Roman Empire had a road system been so developed, been so prepared to where the entire world could safely journey to the place of their birth and be able to do so in an expedient manner. We live in a day now where we still have problems with road systems. Somebody say amen to that. (coughs) You've been down Kingston Pike lately, you know what it's like. But God had prepared and orchestrated that there be a path laid reminds us of the commission of John the Baptist that he was to prepare the way of the Lord and make straight his paths. Now, I understand the spiritual significance of what John was doing. He was preparing the hearts of Israel. But I also recognize that God had in a very tangible, physical, literal sense, literally made roads through the world so that the Lord Jesus Christ could be born according to Scripture. Then there's the idea of what we call Lex Romana. And Lex, that sounds like an evil villain, don't it? Amen. That just occurred to me. Lex Romana. If I ever fall into a vat of nuclear waste and come up with special powers, I'm going to change my name to Lex Romana. You will all fear me. Then we'll have order in this church. Amen. Lex Romana literally means Roman law. Even today, there's many legal terms that are still, like for instance, the term quid pro quo, Latin. Uh, the the uh, term per se, people say, well, per se is a legal term and it, it relates to Latin. And there's many Latin terms with our legal system today. Much of our modern legal system is based upon the Roman legal system. And never before, that was really the Romans, one of their greatest contributions to civilization was that they established an infrastructure, a legal infrastructure, whereby they could operate a vast world empire. It's fascinating to study Roman history and also to study how it degraded. Uh, Listen, we talk about it was, you know, bread and and circuses that killed the Roman Empire. And other people say it was a lack of borders that killed the Roman Empire. If I read my history right, it was bureaucracy that killed the Roman Empire. Because this great Roman legal system that had been wielded by the empire began to wield the empire itself. 
Never before was there the legal infrastructure for there to be a global worldwide census. But the Roman Empire uh, reached their tentacles into almost every corner of the known world and established posts and established record keepers and scribes and uh, taxation systems so that this could even take place. The Lord literally created an entire legal infrastructure so that the whole world could be taxed so that Jesus could be born in Bethlehem. And then there's what we call the Pax Romana. And the Pax Romana literally means Roman peace. Never before in human history, even if there had been the roads to bear it, even if you could have traversed those great distances, never before was there enough security and enough law and order in the world that a person could safely travel from place to place. But under the Romans, they exerted enough influence and enough authority and enough justice. And that was what defined the Roman Empire was law and justice and uh, strength and power and order. And never before had there been a time in human history where people could peaceably travel the long distances that were necessary for the whole world to be taxed. See, this is what I'm getting at. We see in this passage the preparation of providence. But what I want you to really get is the priority of providence. Notice it again. It says in verse 3, All went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. Every person under the jurisdiction of Roman law was uprooted and traveled many long, weary miles so that they could be taxed. Why? Verse 4, And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth. See, here's the fact. God did every bit of this. And more, if we were to really study it carefully and consider the prophetic preparation, consider what God did in Israel, consider what God was doing with other world nations at this time. God did every bit of it so that the Christ child would be born in a little town called Bethlehem Ephrathah, Bethlehem Judah, so that God would be born in the place that Scripture had hundreds of years before prophesied. So that's good, preacher, but what do I do with it? Here's what you do with it. You recognize that when it all comes down to it, it's all about the Lord Jesus Christ. It ain't about you. It ain't about me. You say, preacher, you're telling me I ought to live my life just for the things of God? You're telling me I ought to live for church and live for the Lord, live for doing the will of God? You're telling me I ought to rearrange my life around serving God and living for the Lord? God rearranged human history around the Lord Jesus Christ. And you think that your life or my life is too important to be disrupted for the work and will and desire of God? If He would, listen, move the hearts of emperors, if He would uh, orchestrate vast road systems and legal systems and systems of law and order and justice, all so that the Christ child would be born where God had said He would be born. If Jesus is that important, then how can He be anything less than preeminent in our lives? I see the orchestration of providence in this passage. But look what it says in verse 4 again. It says, And Joseph went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea under the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, bringing great with child. I, I find something interesting in this passage. You and I are very, very familiar with the name Bethlehem. Of course, it means house of bread. And we know it as the place where Christ was born. But we have a tendency sometimes. I was preaching the other day about Mary and the great gift she gave in giving herself unto the work and will of God. 
And we think of Mary, for instance, in the context of the end of the story. We know how the story ends. We know that the angel's message was legitimate. We know that the Holy Ghost moved upon her and that Christ was born of a virgin's womb. We know all that. But to Mary, sitting there in the context, in the moment, in the immediate, imagine what a great expression of faith it was for her to be willing to trust the angel's message. In the same way, when we think of Bethlehem, we think of it as the scene of nativity. We think of it as the only place that Jesus would have ever been born. And yet, if you were to live at this time, you'd probably admit that Bethlehem was one of the most unlikely places for Jesus to be born. In fact, the Bible goes out of its way to denote Bethlehem Ephrata of the land of Judah because there was in fact another Bethlehem that was further north that was even bigger than this Bethlehem. In other words, it wasn't just, it was not the, just not the biggest city. It wasn't even the biggest Bethlehem. That's what I'm getting at. This was a place of vast obscurity. When you look through the Old Testament, you won't find anything good coming out of Bethlehem. You'll find in the Old Testament uh, that whenever the, uh, the, uh, the, the Levite who offered his uh, concubine to be slain by the violent mob in the book of Judges, that he was from Bethlehem, Judah. You'll find that Ruth and Elimelech who left Bethlehem and went into Moab in rebellion and disobedience, that they were from Bethlehem, Judah. But you won't find the name very often in the Old Testament until we come to the New Testament. And there, it's the place that God had chosen for His Son to be born. Uh, Not because it was known, not because it was expected, but for the very opposite reason. Because it was not known, because it was not expected. No one would ever imagine. Herod had to have the scribes search the Scriptures to even find out where Jesus would be born. And when the wise men come to Jerusalem, they do not go to Bethlehem. They go to the palace, for that's where they expected Him to be. And yet it was not in Jerusalem. It was not in Hebron. It was not in Shiloh. But it was in Bethlehem that the Christ child was born. I see in this passage not only the orchestration of providence, but I see the realization of prophecy. Why was Jesus born in Bethlehem? I don't know if you'll accept this answer or not, but it's a good scriptural one. Why was Jesus born in Bethlehem? Because God said He would be born in Bethlehem. Now, again, you can question God's judgment on that matter when you get to heaven, if you've got nerve enough. But what I see in this passage is that God moved entire world systems and God constructed all of human history so that this prophecy about the Son of God and many others would be realized, fulfilled, and would point to Him as not just the Son of God, but God the Son. Not just a teacher, but the Christ child, the Messiah. I see in this passage a couple things. One, I can imagine, and I think it's all, I think imagination's okay if it's sanctified imagination. I can use my imagination and think for just a moment what it must have looked like as Mary and Joseph rode into the city of Bethlehem. I don't know that Mary or Joseph had been, been, had been there. I don't know that Joseph had been there since his birth. We do not know, but we know as he rode into that city that one of the great pillars of Old Testament prophecy was fulfilled and realized. I found this verse interesting in Revelation 19.10. And I'll just read the end of the verse if that's all right. John is viewing the throne and viewing the worshipers before it. And the Bible says this. Well, no, I'll read the whole thing. The Bible says, And I fell at his feet to worship him. Who? Jesus. And he said unto me, or I'm sorry, not Jesus, but the prophet, See thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant. This is the prophet speaking. And of thy brethren, 
that have the testimony of Jesus. And he says, worship God. Then listen to this statement. He says, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. I've spent more than I intended. But let me just simply say this, that one of the great themes of the Christmas season is that every prophecy relating to the Messiah, to the coming Christ, the anointed of God, was perfectly, completely, accurately, thoroughly fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we want to understand what Old Testament prophecy is about, we need to look to the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. For in some way, whether closely connected or distantly connected, every prophecy in the Old Testament builds towards this one climactic moment in human history when the Christ child was born. There are things, prophecies that reach farther into the future, but all of them are anchored to this moment in Bethlehem. And I see proof positive in this passage that God keeps His promises and that His prophecies come true. But then I can't help but in verse 5 notice the timing of prophecy. The Bible says that He came to be taxed with Mary, His espoused wife, being great with child. How many of y'all ladies like that better than pregnant? Anybody? If I was a woman I was pregnant, somebody said, you pregnant? I'd say, no, I'm great with child. By the way, I like that Bible language. It doesn't say great with fetus. Doesn't say great with clump of cells. Doesn't say great with bad decision or regret. It says great with child. That's how the Bible describes a woman that's pregnant. She's with child. Why? Because that's a child. And you know it, and I know it. And guess what? They know it too, whether they'll admit it or not. She was great with child. God brought them to Bethlehem. And you know this to be true if you've ever gone through the experience of having a child that children just show up when they're ready. You can plan, you can schedule, you can claim you know when it's going to happen, but they show up when they want to show up, and usually it's in the wee hours of the morning. They show up when they're ready, and yet God brought them to Bethlehem at just the appropriate time. A few days earlier had they arrived, they probably would have got there and turned around and gone back home. He would have been born in Nazareth. Had they a few days later been planning to arrive, they probably would have postponed their trip, stayed in Nazareth, and had Christ there. But God's timing is impeccable. And He brought them to exactly the appropriate place and moment, not just in a manner of days or weeks or months, but in the whole spectrum of human history. God orchestrated that this child would uh, be brought into Bethlehem at the perfect moment to be born there, fulfilling God's prophecy. It's a reminder to me that God's timing is always spot on. You may not like God's timing. I may not like it either. I may wish God would get on my time frame, but He won't. His timing is always perfect. I see in this passage the realization of prophecy. But I can't help but notice another theme that is nascent to the Christmas story. And that's found in verses 6 and 7. The Bible says, So it was that while they were there... The days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. I see the rejection of the Prince of Peace. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I'm, I'm not as hard on this old innkeeper. You won't find him anywhere in your Bible, by the way. That's the one person we always talk about at Christmas that ain't nowhere in the Bible, the innkeeper. Amen. And that little drummer boy, too. I don't know how he... 
I don't know how he perumpa pum pumped his way into the nativity scene, but... But you won't find the innkeeper anywhere in the Christmas story. But evidently, I think it is a reasonable assumption that someone, when the very Son of God and God in the flesh was carried up to the door or was carried in the uh, virgin's womb up to the door and the news was given and help was sought, there had to be someone that said, I'm sorry, we just don't have any room. And because of that, we see Christ born, laid in a manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes. Again, I don't want to be too hard on the people in the context surrounding it. I don't know that I would have responded any differently if I was operating with the same information. But I do see in this passage a shadowing of His greater rejection. For instance, let me say it this way. We would imagine, and the wise men, by the way, when they arrived in Jerusalem, they expected to find an anointed Christ child. They expected to find a child being treated like a king, but they didn't. And on this night, when you had seen the Christ child, you would have seen him, number one, in rags instead of robes. He was in swaddling clothes. You would have imagined that he would have been wrapped in the finest of purple and velvet, that he would have been laid upon a pillow, that he would have been nurtured and cared for, wrapped in all the vestiges of splendor and of wealth. But instead, they find him in simple, humble, swaddling clothes. This is a reminder of the Lord Jesus' ministry. Uh, Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, He shall grow up before Him as a root out of a dry ground. The Bible says there's no form nor comeliness in Him. Uh, We rejected Him when we saw Him. There was no beauty in Him. Uh, That term when it says He shall grow up like a root out of a dry ground, like a tender plant, literally, literally means like a weed. Like if you was walking across your uh, pavement and you looked down and saw a weed growing up out of your walkway, uh, you wouldn't nurture it, you wouldn't baby it, you wouldn't stand in awe of it, and you wouldn't compliment it. You'd reach down and whack, just cut it down. That's how they treated the Lord Jesus Christ. Instead of viewing and seeing Him as who He is, they saw no beauty in Him. He was in rags instead of robes. You would have seen Him in a manger instead of in a scene of majesty. You would have expected there to be great adoration of this Christ child. And certainly there was no doubt in the heart and eyes of his mother and of his stepfather. But you wouldn't have found, you know, a great scene taking place around the Lord Jesus' manger. Just a few gathered there. It's interesting that he was placed in a manger. A manger is a feeding trough. In fact, it's the place that the sheep go to feed. What a picture it is of his ministry. He didn't come, listen, to be crowned a king. Not the first time. Second time he's coming not to be crowned as a king. He's already crowned as king. He's coming back as king of kings and lord of lords. When he came the first time, he didn't come to be made a sovereign. He came to be made a sacrifice. He didn't come to be crowned. He came to be crucified. And this, I believe, foreshadows his ministry, his office. And then I want you to notice, again, we're hard on this innkeeper. He's not found anywhere there, but... There had to be that moment when they went to the inn and said, Is there room? And somebody who through the grace of God is hidden from the scope of Scripture, somebody must have said, I'm sorry, there's just no room. I believe we see him here in rags instead of robes, manger instead of majesty, but I noticed that he was refused instead of received. I started to use the term rejected, by the way. Certainly this is part of the overall theme of his rejection. But I think the way that whoever this person was that turned them away, I think the way that they turned him away is the way the Jews turned him away, and it's the way that people today turn him away. Often not with hatred, often not with hostility and vitriol, but simply saying, I'm sorry, I just don't have any room for you. 
Got too much of myself, too much of my desires, too much of my plans, my ambitions, my aspirations. I got too much of me. I don't have room for you. The Bible says he came unto his own, and his own received him not. The Bible says that light came into the world, but men loved darkness rather than light. It doesn't say that they hated the light. Now, it does later say that men hate the light because their deeds are evil. They won't come to it. But initially, it just says men love darkness rather than light. Most people don't plan on going to hell because they hate God. Most people just love themselves too much to ever see past themselves and see their need of the Christ, the Savior. I see a shadowing of His rejection. But I find this to be interesting. I see the sign of His rejection. Look down at verse 12. I know we're skipping a few verses. We'll walk back and pick them up here in a moment. But whenever the angel is speaking to the shepherds, he says this, This shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. What fascinates me is the the evidences of his refusal and rejection are the very things that pointed those with seeking hearts to Him. It was not the star that was pointed to, although later that would guide the wise men. It was not the testimony of Mary, although she certainly gave testimony, especially to Elizabeth, of what God had done in her life. It was not the testimony of others. It was not great signs and wonders in the heavens. It was not great actions. It was the rejection that marked him as the Messiah. This is something the Jewish nation missed. When Christ came to the Jewish nation, they were looking for a king that would deliver them from the yoke of Roman bondage. What they received was a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. They were looking for the great conqueror of their enemies. And instead they saw the Lamb of God that was to be made a sacrifice for them. See, here's what I'm trying to get to this morning, and I hope you'll get there with me. Oftentimes people are only interested in the Lord for what He can do for Him, not for what He's already done for Him. God's done a lot of gracious things in my life. There's been a lot of messes I've made that God's done got me out of. been a lot of mistakes I've made that God has fixed. But there's a lot of people that they want a Savior to get them out of debt or to fix their marriage or to heal their body, but they have no desire to be saved from their sins. They want a benefactor, but they don't want a Savior. But it was the very signs of His rejection that marked Him as being able to save those that needed saving. And the fact is, listen, what you need, if you're lost without Christ today, what you need, you don't need a a financial planner. You don't need a self-help guru. You don't need someone to boost your self-esteem. You need a Savior. You need someone, not that you can tell you you're okay in your mess, but that can get you out of the mess. And not the mess that you've made, but the mess that you are. Because we all are a mess. It was the evidences of His rejection that marked Him out as the Messiah, as the Christ. And listen, one day there's going to be plenty of outward manifestations of His sovereignty and authority. One day He'll sit on the throne of David and He'll rule with utter surety, with a rod of iron. He'll smite the nations. But if you wait till that day to try to look to Him, you've waited too long. Take the signs of His suffering, of His death, of His rejection, and own Him and make Him your Lord and Savior. I see the rejection of the Prince of Peace in this passage. But then I notice the annunciation of peace in verses 8 and 9. This is an important theme of Christmas. 
Bible says they were in the same country, shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Down in verse 14, when they closed out this song, they said, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. One of the great scenes of the Christmas narrative that we all like to think of and we sing about it, angels we have heard on high, hark the herald angels sing, is this great annunciation that took place from the angel and then from the multitude of heavenly hosts. But I wonder sometimes, do we really understand the importance of it? Think with me for a moment, first off, about the audience of this message. Isn't it significant that Christ, or that the angel did not go to the palaces of the world? God had the ability to move the heart of Caesar Augustus. But it wasn't to Caesar Augustus that the angel came. You see, it's not as much about what God can do. Oh, I want you to listen to this. It's not as much about what God can do. It's about what you'll allow Him to do. When God chose to, He could move Caesar Augustus around like a piece on a chessboard. But it wasn't to Caesar that the message came. It was to the shepherds with their open, willing hearts. I'm glad that the Lord went to simple folk. Because I would have never got in, friend, if He didn't come to simple folk. I'm glad that the Lord comes not to those. And He does come to those in palaces if their hearts will be open. He does come to those with big bank accounts and with great power and prestige if their hearts are open. But I'm glad that, listen, those of us too that are poor, that are insignificant, that are never going to be in any great books, never going to be on any great lists, that the Lord is still speaking to those that will open their hearts to Him. They were simple, but they were also sober. And I don't mean they weren't drunk, although I don't think they were. But I mean they paid attention. They were listening the message. The Bible says that when this message was delivered, that great fear fell upon them. Why? Because they took it seriously. God's still speaking to those that are simple, but God's still speaking to those that are sensitive to His Spirit and to His leading. In other words, if you'll listen to God, God will speak to you. You say, preacher, I don't know how to listen to God. Well, isn't that a silly thing to say? I ain't trying to rebuke you for what I said, but I know people think it. Well, I wouldn't know how. How do I know if God's speaking to me? God don't whisper. God don't stutter. When He wants to make known to you something, He'll speak to your heart. He'll do it through His Word. He'll do it through His Spirit. He'll do it through the preached Word of God. You just humble your heart. And like Mary, say, Behold, the handmaid of the Lord. Lord, here I am. Speak to me. God's still speaking to those whose hearts are open. I see the audience, but I notice the substance of this message. I've got to hurry. It makes you feel better when I say that. I don't really plan on hurrying, but (laughs) keeps you on the line. There are three chief statements the angel makes about the nature of his message. First, he says that he's come to bring them good tidings of great joy. The heartbeat of the Christmas story is the good tidings. What are good tidings? There's another word we use, and it's the word uh, gospel. The term gospel literally means good tidings, good news. In fact, if we were to speak the language it was written in, we'd use those two words interchangeably. We'd say, I bring you a gospel, a good story, good news, good tidings. I believe 
that we don't really understand the Christmas story until we understand the truth of the gospel. This angel showed up and announced God's salvation. What was that good news? What was those good tidings of great joy? That unto you a Savior is born. That God has a plan to redeem you, to save you, and to pick you up out of the mess that you are. I see good tidings of great joy. But then he says this, glory to God in the highest. They announce God's salvation, but they also announce God's satisfaction. How did God get glory in the highest? He got glory in the highest from the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, The most glorious thing to ever happen in history was the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. For in it, God proved Himself not only master of death, not only master of humanity, but even proved Himself master of man's fallenness. You see, God's holy. I want to explain this because I've done jumped in with both feet, so I better explain it instead of letting you walk out of here misunderstanding me. God's a holy God. God has always had a desire to have fellowship with you and I, with humanity. But our fallenness, our depravity, our sinfulness, our brokenness, the fact that we have transgressed God's righteousness. You say, well, God's got all these rules. No, God's just pointing out what are the true realities of the human experience. In other words, something's not wrong because God said it's wrong. God said it's wrong because it is wrong, because it's contrary to His holiness and to His righteousness. And you and I were transgressors against God's righteousness. If you don't believe that, look around at this broken, sin-filled world. Look at your life, look at my life, and tell me you and I aren't sinners. Of course we're sinners. Because God is a righteous God, and God is a holy God, and God is an immutable God who never lies. And He said, the soul that sinneth it shall die. You and I, we must die for our sins. But God, where there was no way found a way. Like David, who brought Absalom back by all means. That's what the woman of Tekoa said, by all means. God, by all means, reconciled the sinner unto himself. How did he do that? Look, Romans says that he did that by substituting our sinfulness and Christ's righteousness. In other words, God took our sin and put it on the shoulders of Christ and took his robe of righteousness and placed it upon us. Paul said, For he hath made him be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God perpetrated and orchestrated and operated that great exchange. And in doing so, Paul said in Romans chapter 3, he became both just and the justifier of them that come unto him by faith. This is the reason that God derived more glory out of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and probably any other event through human history, for it proved His mastery over everything. That He could even, where there was no way, find a way to redeem and save fallen man. Glory to God in the highest. God is satisfied with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And then there's a third truth that's announced here. It says, peace, goodwill towards man. They announced God's salutation. In other words, what exactly are God's intentions with mankind? How many, well, I won't ask this question, but those of you that have raised daughters that have grown up, become teenagers, uh, you probably had a time or two where some little old boy has started sniffing around interested in your daughter. And you might have asked this question before as you're sitting there cleaning your shotgun. Son, what are your intentions with my daughter? And what you're saying is this. What are you up to? What's your plan? 
if you've got one. Why are you here sitting uncomfortably sweating and possibly crying in my living room? What are your intentions? I'd ask this question. When we look at the Christmas story, what are God's intentions? His salutation here. Why did He send His Son to die? What are God's plans for each individual person if they'll only relent to God's will? What does He want with you and I? Peace on earth. Goodwill toward men. Goodwill toward men. In other words, in the Christmas story, you know what we learn? We learn that though God is angry with the wicked every day, that He does not delight in the wicked perishing in their iniquity. He does not delight in men dying in their sins. Though God hates sin, He does love the sinner. Though He does not in any way condone or permit iniquity or unrighteousness, He will go to unimaginable lengths to redeem the sinner, to cleanse him from his sin, to save him from his unrighteousness, and to secure him a place of fellowship and communion and a home in heaven. What's the message? Peace on earth. God's Hey, listen, God's not come to start a war with you. God's come to make reconciliation. You're already at war with God. You're already an enemy against God. God's come to reconcile you unto Himself. God's come not with war in mind, but with peace. And He's come with a desire. One day He'll come with war in mind. We might just do a little preaching there. One day He will come with a sword sharper. Proceeding out of his mouth, the word of God. One day he will come with his vesture dipped in blood, with a name written on his thigh, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. One day he will come to exercise his authority. But right now he extends a hand of grace to fallen man and says, Oh, everyone that thirsteth come and drink. Everyone that isn't hungry come and buy bread without money. He says, Come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden and I'll give you rest. So he won't take me. Oh, he said, any that come unto me, I'll in no wise cast out. Peace on earth, goodwill towards men. And then I want you to notice, finally, you believe that? I see a fifth theme with the Christmas story that I want to give you very quickly. Look at verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. I see that the salvation of people, of mankind, of sin-fallen, sin-corrupted man is one of the great themes of Christmas. In closing, let me say that we see that there is a personal need of salvation. He said, unto you, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Every person under the sound of my voice needs a Savior. For every person under the sound of my voice is a sinner. I am a sinner. You're a sinner. Say, you don't even know me. I don't have to know you. Because the Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You say, I'm a good person. You may be, but you're not righteous. For there's none righteous. No, not one. You may be good in men's eyes. You may be good in men's opinion. You may be good relative to other people you know. But in the eyes of God and standing next to the holiness of, of God... You're filthy, just like I'm filthy. You're depraved, just like I'm depraved. You may be good in the eyes of men, but there's none righteous. No, not one. Every one of us needs a Savior. We have a personal need. Unto you is born this day 
in the city of David. And what is he? He's a Savior. I see the purpose nature of the Lord Jesus. Listen, men's greatest need is not money or God would have sent a banker. Men's greatest need is not physical health or God would have sent a doctor. Men's greatest need is not just emotional well-being or He would have sent a psychiatrist. Man's greatest need is to be saved and so He sent a Savior. Whatever else you may perceive Jesus Christ to be, if you don't know Him as Savior, you don't know Him at all. And I see finally in closing the particular name of this Savior. Who is He? The book of Acts says there's none other name given under heaven, given among men, whereby you must be saved. The Bible says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess. Who is this Savior? The Bible says, which is Christ the Lord. If you don't know Him this morning, then you've missed everything. But i got good news for you. You say, would God save somebody like me? Oh, yes, He would. His hand is extended. His offer of grace and mercy is good. And if you'll just take that hand by faith, if you'll just quit depending on yourself, if you'll just admit yourself a sinner and quit trying to depend on your righteousness, then He will save you and do for you what you cannot do for yourself.